0: This Bible talk from the Gospel Coalition Australia features TGCA council member and Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, Kanishka Raphael, preaching from Titus 1 verses 1 to 4. It was the first keynote address delivered at TGCA's 2022 national conference. It did not become difficult to preach the gospel in Australia on the day that the Essendon Football Club CEO, Andrew Thorburn, was sacked. It was already hard. But that event highlighted a few things that were already true. There is little understanding of the Christian faith in the Australian community, and there is little tolerance for it, especially when it appears to conflict with the culture's Affirmation of autonomy, especially in the area of sexuality. Second, loyalty to Christ is increasingly likely to require courage on the part of the disciples. Anyone who calls himself a disciple. And no status or wealth or prior achievement will protect you. And lastly, few will come to your defence, and at least some Christians will take sides with the world against you. None of this is new in the history of Christianity or the experience of Christians today around the world, but it feels new in Australia. It didn't become difficult to preach the gospel when they released the census results. It was already difficult. But the fact that fewer than 50% of Australians now identify as Christians, and more than 30% identify as having no religion, highlights something about the context of our ministry. Of course, we know that the decline in numbers reflects in part that there are more people who no longer call themselves members of a church they never attended anyway. And yet, many of those who say they're not religious are open to exploring Christianity. 30% say they would accept an invitation to church from a Christian family member or friend But more than half, 56% of Australians say they do not know a Christian family member or friend. As a former Archbishop of Sydney once said, knowing a Christian is becoming as exotic as knowing a zookeeper. (laughs) It didn't become difficult to preach the gospel in Australia when the world fell into the grip of the COVID pandemic. But 30 months later, most churches and their leaders continue to work out what the lasting impact and implications are. We have by no means escaped the global blanket of grief, not only over lost loved ones, but so many kinds of loss that have inescapably burdened us all. And the ministers of the gospel who had responsibility for the care of souls and sought to continue in the midst of the pandemic to reach out to their communities in service and love with the hope of the gospel in the midst of so much despair and anxiety, the ministers of the gospel themselves were not immune from the pressures of caring for their own families and the need to maintain a personal sense of spiritual and ministerial vitality. And many have still not had a proper holiday. If you're finding it hard to bring the life-giving, sin-washing heart-healing, soul-saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to your community, I'm not surprised. And so we're spending a little time in the letter to Titus, in part, I guess, because it was written to an experienced and trusted fellow worker of the Apostle Paul who had an incredibly difficult task before him in an unpromising cultural context. Chapter 1, verse 5, whatever we didn't finish, Titus, put it in order. Now, Paul's relationship with Titus probably goes back to the earliest days of his ministry to the Gentiles, the so-called unknown years. At the beginning of his ministry, he'd taken Titus with him as a relatively new convert to Jerusalem, withstood the pressure of the false brothers as he calls them in Galatians, who wanted Titus to be circumcised. Titus had been Paul's emissary and ambassador on several occasions to the church in Corinth, gathering the collection, delivering the stern, tearful letter. He was able, experienced, and trusted, not a newbie. Paul's description of him in verse 4, One of my verses, (laughs) as his true son, speaks probably not only of Titus's conversion through the preaching of Paul, but also of the authenticity of his faith proven in the crucible of years of mission experience and grueling gospel work alongside now aging apostle I take it the pastoral letters were all written after Paul's first Roman imprisonment and soon after perhaps in the early 60s Paul had joined Titus in Crete in mission and seen several churches planted on the uh, Mediterranean island and now from Nicopolis Paul writes to Titus saying in verse 5 of chapter 1 not my verse I know the reason i left you in crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town because there are churches now in every town but there is disorder in the churches in crete and titus's task is to set things right well how bad are they exactly there are no elders But nature abhors a vacuum, and so do churches. And in the absence of elders, there are plenty of voices. Verse 10, rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, disrupting households, teaching things they ought not to teach. Paul calls them the circumcision group, suggesting they're part of the church. But verse 16, they claim to know God, but their actions deny him. You need to bring order to these churches, Titus. But in addition to the problems within the church, the culture, a culture that has never before been impacted by the message of Jesus, is deeply corrupt. And we might wonder what, what will happen to a culture that forgets its impact, its, its connection with Jesus. Verse 12 of chapter 1 Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. A culture that does not know the word of truth is a culture given to deception for selfish gain. A culture that does not know the grace of forgiveness or the father of compassion is animalistic, evil brutes, literally wild beasts, red in tooth and claw, given to rapaciousness and devouring of others. A culture that knows no generous and selfless God is self-indulgent, exploitative, and unproductive. Titus, I've left you there to complete what was unfinished. i spent a little while setting the scene for this letter, hopefully not stealing too much of Paul's thunder, to offer an explanation for why Paul's introductory greeting in this letter is unusually long. In most of Paul's letters, he introduces himself as Paul, an apostle, includes any co-workers who might be with him, and proceeds to identify the people to whom the letter is addressed: the church of the Thessalonians, in, uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. But in this letter, he takes 70 words to introduce himself before he greets Titus by name. And Titus already knew him. (laughs) And in those three verses, he piles on theological and biblical themes and ideas. Now, why? I think it's because he knows that things are tough for Titus. He knows they will be tough. And he wants to set his letter to his treasured companion and co-worker into a theological and historical framework that lifts his eyes from eternity to eternity and strengthens his heart and calms his fears as he faces the task ahead. And the bulwark of this encouragement is the utter God-centeredness of his own apostolic identity the task that has been committed to him the nature and outcome of the gospel though he speaks of his own apostolic identity and ministry he does so in order to point titus to the god of the gospel in whom he is to place all of his hope So I've got four Ps, God-centred personhood, a God-centred purpose, a God-centred promise, a God-centred proclamation, personhood, purpose, promise and proclamation. They taught me that at archbishop school. First, a God-centered personhood. Paul describes himself as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's typical for Paul to describe himself as an apostle of Jesus. He was the one untimely born. There were the 12 who'd been with Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, walked and talked and ate and witnessed what he did and said. But Paul was specifically commissioned by the risen Lord Set aside as the 13th apostle sent by Jesus to be apostle to the Gentiles. Though he was, by his own account, the worst of sinners, grace was shown to him so that he might be an example and encouragement to those who would follow him in believing in Jesus and so, against all deserving and expectation, would, like Paul, receive eternal life by grace. So the note of apostolicity in this letter, I think, is not so much about asserting authority as to exalt the one who saved and sent him. And so he is not only apostle, but first servant of God. A man purchased without rights. Entrusted with a stewardship to which he must prove faithful. I want you to put things right, Titus. People are deceitful, self-serving, disobedient. But remember me, servant of God and apostle of grace. Remember whose you are. Remember on whose mission you are sent. Remember in the world... And the wind and the tears and the trials of your ministry, your identity is rooted in God and his grace. Not in the work that you do, not in the outcome of your labor, but in the one who sent you and owns you. Secondly, a God-centred purpose. Paul gives a two-pronged description of his apostolic task. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. God has elected a people to be his own. (laughs) Isn't that glorious? What good news. God has elected a people to be his very own. The work that Paul and Titus shared in preaching the gospel in Crete has demonstrated that some of God's elect are in Crete the place where everyone is always a liar and a brute and a glutton. It would be hard to imagine a place less promising for the preaching of the gospel than Crete. Unless, of course, it was Melbourne. (laughs) But even in Crete and even in Melbourne and even in Sydney and even in Cowra, and Cool and Gadda and Karangamite and Kuba and Carnarvon and Catherine and Devonport because nowhere in Tasmania starts with C. <laughs> God has elected some for salvation. And we know that because wherever. And whenever the gospel is preached, some believe. Well, how about that as a reason to plant churches? The apostles' ministry is to further the faith of God's elect. They are God's people. God has called them. God has saved them. God will surely keep them according to his eternal purpose. And the apostles' ministry is to grow their faith, to deepen their trust, to strengthen their faith in the Lord Jesus, and to strengthen and grow and deepen their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In our culture, uh, people think of faith and knowledge as opposites. But in the Bible, faith and knowledge are partners, not polarities. Christian faith is trust in things made known, shown to be reliable. Trust in Jesus proceeds from confidence that he is trustworthy faith in a biblical sense is the very opposite of believing in the absence of evidence it is trust in a person on the basis of our knowledge of that person since we know the love of Christ in the cross of Christ we put our confidence in him Paul affirms that the truth of the gospel leads to godliness The people whom God elects to salvation are people elected to be conformed to the likeness of God by their faith in him and their knowledge of the truth. And of course that means to the likeness of Jesus who makes God known. Faith in Christ is not the opposite of knowledge but knowledge of a person. Faith in Christ is not merely an intellectual assent to a set of dogmatic propositions or a sentimental experience of being moved by the story of the man on a cross. Faith in Christ and knowledge of the truth of the gospel is formative and fruitful, producing godliness. The likeness of God in the believer. Twice in the letter, Paul gives a summary of the truth that leads to godliness, and both times he draws a straight line between the gospel and the godly life that it produces. In chapter 2, at verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, When the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. And at the end of that section in verse 8, I want you to stress these things so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. How can we make society better? The Cretans are liars, brutes, and gluttons. Even those in the church are self-serving, denying God, and disobedient. In our day, we want men especially to exercise self-control over their passions and to be kind and respectful and safe towards women. We want corporations and governments and citizens to limit their consumption and greed so that we can stabilise the climate and care for those facing environmental collapse or famine or displacement. We want nations to lay down arms. We want people to be treated with respect regardless of their age or gender or sexuality or religion or skin color. And around the globe, people cry out for justice and dignity and safety. We make laws, we impose sanctions, we install CCTV. One nation's education program is another nation's concentration camp. The Apostle Paul says to his co-worker, I am the servant of God to further the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I want you to put things in order, Titus. Titus remember that the knowledge of the truth of God's gospel leads to godly living. Beware those who claim that they know God but by their actions deny him. God's elect people, their faith in him and their knowledge of his truth will change the world One person at a time. The apostles' God-centered purpose. Thirdly, a God-centered promise. The faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness is faith and knowledge, verse 3, in the hope of eternal life. Which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light. Faith and knowledge in the promise of the hope of eternal life. The power of this promise. What makes it capable of producing godliness in those who believe in it and offering such a sure Uh, offering a sure hope of eternal life. What makes it capable of this is that it is the promise of the God who does not lie. All Cretans are liars. The gods of the Greeks were notorious for their duplicity, especially in dealing with human beings, especially women. The divine Caesars of Rome were utterly cynical and cruel in their casual disavowal of any undertaking, whether to foreign kings or close courtiers or dismal subjects. But the God of the gospel is the God of truth. We admire those who speak truth to power. But we worship a God who speaks truth to the powerless, to the hopeless and the helpless, the lost and those condemned by our own wickedness. And the God who does not lie speaks to his own. Hope of eternal life. Paul repeats the phrase in chapter 3 in verses 4 to 7. When the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we'd done but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. He is the shape of the hope of eternal life. It comes as a gift of God's mercy, not because of anything righteous we've done. Nor does our unrighteousness disqualify us since we are justified by grace. This hope of eternal life, which is a gift and a promise and an inheritance, guaranteed by the God who is three in one. The God who saved us. The washing by the Spirit. Poured out by our Saviour Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us. From all wickedness. Do you see the God centeredness of the promise of the hope of eternal life? And do you see how that is a bulwark for our encouragement, a guarantee of its trustworthiness, a seal of its certainty? Do you see? Not a mere human promise, but a divine promise. Not something that depends on our good works or something defeated by our sin, but the achievement of the God who is three in one. And, not only so, the God who is utterly and graciously and powerfully and lavishly committed to the salvation of those who believe. And it is a promise that has a God-centered context beyond the mind or scope or imagining of any mere mortal. It was promised before the beginning of time. It concerns the life that goes on forever into eternity and which has now been brought to light. Whose plans and promises and power can span from the beginning of time to the end of eternity? Only the God whom Paul describes three times as our Saviour. The churches are disordered. The culture is disobedient. The people are deceived and deceptive. I've left you there to straighten things out, Titus. Remember the hope we hold out and the promise we proclaim. The work of Father, Son and Spirit in time and eternity to save. So that justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. A God centered personhood, servant, and apostle. A God centered purpose to further the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. A God centered promise. The hope of eternal life. And lastly, a God-centered proclamation. Paul says that God has now brought to light the hope of eternal life. Twice in the letter, he says, the grace of God has uh, appeared. Twice in the letter, he says, the grace of God has appeared. Chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 4. The kindness and love of God our Saviour has appeared. And we understand him to be referring to the incarnation. At least I do. In in chapter 2, verse 13, he refers to the return of Jesus while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Each time we understand him to be speaking about the personal appearance of Jesus. But in chapter 1 in verse 3, Paul refers to the hope of eternal life that has been brought to light at the appointed season through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. And the ESV more literally includes the words that the NIV tidies up, manifested in his word, through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. How are things set right in the churches? How are liars and evil brutes and self-centred glutton's to be changed? How is faith in Christ to be nurtured? How is knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness to be deepened? How can a culture be changed? How can hope be born? Titus, God commanded me to proclaim his word. You do the same. Teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1. Appoint elders who hold to the trustworthy message so they can encourage others and refute those who oppose it, chapter 1, verse 9. Rebuke those who deny God by their actions, chapter 2, verse 13. Teach the older men, teach the older women, teach the younger men, teach the slaves, encourage and rebuke with all authority and set an example of godly living that accords With sound teaching. Chapter 2 verse 7. The scriptures are useful. For teaching and rebuking. And correcting and training. And Titus. God has commanded me to have a ministry of preaching. And teaching and correcting and rebuking. In accordance with the word of God. And so should you. And live a life. Shaped by the word that is preached. If the word does not accompany the life, there will be no persuasion or explanation of it. If the life does not accompany the preaching, it will be fruitless and ineffective. But it's the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And Paul, in greeting Titus, you can dispute this with me over morning tea if you want, but let's just go with it, shall we? Hints, hints at the power of this word to change life and eternity, as he concludes. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Paul and Titus have a common faith in the gospel word entrusted to the Apostle, with the result that they together affirm that God is Father. They have been adopted into the family of God through faith in the gospel. This has come about through Jesus, the Saviour, by whom they have been redeemed from slavery to sin and death. And they now enjoy fellowship in his name. Paul is father in the gospel to his true son, Titus, whom he delights to acknowledge in that familial way. Redemption, adoption, fellowship and the present and continuing gift and experience of the redeeming, adopting, reconciling work of the gospel, grace and peace. Gospel fuel for life and ministry. Grace from God in Jesus. Knowledge of God's mercy and kindness and love and help. Peace in a world of opposition, challenge, disappointment, facing an uncertain future, a daunting task, a hostile culture. Peace. 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 Grace and peace from God the Father. And Jesus Christ, our saviour. I've left you behind to set things straight, Titus. But you're not alone. You're caught up in the plan of God that stretches from eternity to eternity. The outcome is secure, Because it was promised by God before the beginning, it is now manifest through the preaching of the word of God at the command of God. And you are not your own, you are God's servant for the sake of God's elect people to hold out the hope of the gospel of God which transforms us into the likeness of God our Father. And in all of it, through the appearing of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we live by the gifts of God's gospel, grace and peace. Amen. This talk has been brought to you by the Gospel Coalition Australia. Visit our website at thegospelcoalition.org.au to find other resources for your encouragement.